0: All of these kinds of things are what keep us bonded. And as we get very, very busy and we get standard sexology advice, we tend to think when we do have sex, it should just be about orgasm. And we forget the importance of these daily bonding behaviors. Uno, dos,
1: Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello, friends. I hope you're doing well. I hope your summer's off to a good start. And I'm excited to share my first interview in a little while today. I hope you'll forgive the audio quality for this intro might not be quite as good as usual. As usual, I've been doing a lot of traveling lately. I don't have my home set up. But I think the audio was pretty good for this interview that I'm going to share today. But before I get to that, quick announcement. I just want to share once again that my new book is out now. It's called The Overcoming Jealousy Workbook. Daily writing prompts and exercises for overcoming jealousy in relationships. It's available via Amazon, Apple iBooks, and most places online where books are sold. You can get an ebook version or a paperback. And if you've ever struggled with any kind of jealousy, I think you'll find it helpful. Reader responses so far have been really encouraging. So, yeah, I hope you get a chance to check it out. It's called the Overcoming Jealousy Workbook. Without any further ado, I'm really excited to announce my guest slash guests today. Marnia Robinson is an author. She wrote a book called Cupid's Poisoned Arrow, which is one of the most impactful books I think I've ever read with regards to how I see sex and how I see long-term relationships. It's essentially a book about sort of the neurochemistry of sex and orgasm and why having different types of sex without the goal of orgasm, can actually really strengthen long-term relationships, can make us feel closer to our partners, can solve some of our relationship problems, and how incorporating this view of sex into our daily lives and you know, the way we interact with our partner can make us much happier and give us a much better shot at making love last. It's a tremendous book. It's a very important book, I think. So I was very excited to have this opportunity Joining us on the call is Marnia's longtime friend who we'll call Anya, who also shares some really unique and powerful insights with regards to how she's making her own marriage last and some of the lessons she's learned on this road, of uh, this very strange road of having sex without the goal of orgasm. If this idea sounds really far out or strange or you're suspicious at all of um, the value of something like this, I really urge you to, to listen to... Uh, you know, to take in what Marnia and Anya are talking about. And I can honestly say this is one of the favorite conversations that I've had for this podcast. So I'm really excited to share with you. Before we get started, I'll just remind you that ratings and reviews are very, very important for any podcast success, including this one. So if you dig the show, please take 30 seconds out of your day and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Without any further ado, finally, I'd like to introduce my guests, Marnia Robinson, and Anya. So I knew I know you, Marnia, but I don't know your friend. So hello, I'm Zach. Hi, Zach.
2: Good to meet you.
1: Nice to meet this you. This is Anya. Hello, Anya. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and are you just you're a friend or?
2: Yeah, I've known Marnie for nearly 30 years. So we've been on this journey for a very long time, learning, you know, experimenters
0: together in parallel. I'll tell you just quickly a funny story. We met on a ferry. I was living in Brussels and so was Mary. And we both happened to take a ferry from Ostend in Belgium to Hull in England. And we happened to both sign up for a semi-private cabin and we talked all night. We had never met each other. We never slept. We just talked the entire night, and part of what I was telling her about was everything I was learning about the stuff in my book, and she was so fascinated that we stayed friends thereafter, and now we're both married to men who are kind enough to uh,
2: do this. Accommodate her
0: bizarre (laughs) ideas.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Did you say 30 years ago? So, Marty, you've been thinking about this stuff for 30 years. I didn't realize it had been that long.
0: <laughs> yep. It started in about 1991. Wow. And I was just so fascinated.
1: So. Wow. Well, why don't, we, why don't we start there then? That seems as good a place as any. Marty, I know I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts. I know you've, you've sort of unpacked the book and introduced it many times, but I'm going to ask you to do it again. If you could just talk a little bit about the book, just kind of introduce it for someone who hasn't read it. Um, what is the main thrust of your argument? Um, And maybe you can work in there some somehow. I'm really curious just about how this how you developed this interest in in this topic and how this this stuff came up for you
0: Well, there it was a very slow unfolding of things Um, but the book itself is about how relationships intimate sexual relationships often seem to deteriorate and what various different cultures around the world and through the ages have done to counter this force and it's my theory that it's it's biological programming that we're up against so we actually have to shift our behavior in order to you could call it quiet the limbic system and make sure the signals for pair bonding are loud and clear and some of the signals that usually drive us towards sexual novelty and new partners are quieter
1: i see do you need to answer your phone?
0: No, we have husbands for that.
1: <laughs> That's great. <laughs> they they come in handy. Yes, they do. <laughs> what, what about you, Anya? How did your interest get piqued in uh, in this kind of this, this topic?
2: Well, at the time I met Marnia, I had recently come out of a broken engagement, and I thought I loved this guy. I thought he loved me, and although we had had wonderful sex. I couldn't understand why the relationship had broken down and I was fascinated to discover there might be a biological reason for it because of course I was blaming myself every possible reason under the sun I could come up with it was my fault I wasn't this enough it wasn't that enough and um, so that this this was just so exciting that you know there might be a bigger reason behind it so I was keen to follow on and, and learn more and despite um, the enticement of big money in Brussels to, you know, work at the European, I was working at the European Commission, and despite all kinds of enticements to stay on and, you know, get very high salary, at a certain point, I thought, this is far more interesting than anything else. And um, I went off to Cambridge University to study more about it. And this was just around the time when the Da Vinci Code had not yet come out, and I went off to study the Gnostic Gospels, which nobody except Marnia, it seems, had heard of. <laughs> and everybody thought I was completely start-raving bonkers, giving up these fabulous opportunities in Brussels to go and study something obscure in in Cambridge. But it was the right thing. So that was part of my step forward in learning more about it.
1: And what are you working on today, Anya? What, where did this path take you?
2: Well... I studied sacred sexual practices at Cambridge University. I was in the, the Faculty of Divinity and Religious Studies. And I was a real outsider because I wasn't, you know, religious. I'm not a religious. I'm interested in the impact of religion on culture. But um, I wasn't, you know, practicing any religion, but I was just interested in its influence on, on culture. And um, so I, I did that. And then 9-11 happened. And then because I'd studied some, you know, I'd been working on theology, suddenly Islamism became the big new topic. And I was asked to be involved in looking at the mindset of suicide bombers. And so for the next nine years, I was involved in helping to do research on that. Which Marnia, in fact, she came and spoke at one of my international workshops to see if perhaps adolescent young men... You know, and the promise of seventy-two perpetual virgins might be, you know, one of the enticements. And you know, whether um, their inability to perform as um, successful young men in the modern world and be able to get married—that was being stymied by the fact they couldn't get jobs, and they couldn't get married, couldn't have children because they didn't have an income, and therefore terrorism. And blaming the West um, with its sort of decadent behavior looked like a um, a good solution, so we think well we, we think that, that that the internet and the enticements there and just something about the adolescent brain um, might be related to terrorism
1: that's fascinating and i've i've often wondered about that actually um, i st- i mean in grad school I, I took a few classes on Islamic fundamentalism and stuff, and I always felt that a missing piece of the puzzle. Was sexual repression and sexual frustration? Yeah, yeah. I've spent a lot of time in India, and uh, you know it's, sexual repression does really, really creepy things to young men in particular. I'm sure this, this isn't news to, to you too, obviously, yeah. because you know, it's pretty well known, but that's absolutely fascinating. I should have you back in the podcast sometimes, and it'll easily be our the most controversial episode of <laughs> my podcast <laughs> history.
2: That would be fun. I did a talk for ABC. Uh, radio some years ago about that when I was based at Cambridge University ABC in Australia. Yeah. Yes. ABC in Australia. Yeah. Just on that, and they were like, "Oh my God, this is incredible." Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> wow. Well, maybe we'll, we can circle back around to that. <laughs> um, but that's that's fascinating. Um, well, well, Marnie, coming back to you, let's talk a little bit about uh, orgasms because we haven't mentioned that word yet, I don't think, and I think it's kind of it's important for this discussion. Um. That's probably the most sort of publicized or the most well-known point from your book is just a different way of looking at orgasm. How do you see orgasms and how does that fit into what you're talking about and how does that fit into sustaining um, you know, long-term relationships?
0: Well, I guess I see orgasm as a burst of neurochemicals in the brain, which feel great in the moment, no argument there but which also set off a cycle, which in some of us can take up to two weeks before we're completely back to equilibrium. And during that time, we can have some ups and downs as these different neurochemicals come back into balance slowly. Because that's going on and because our neurochemistry, especially in this emotional part of the brain called the limbic system, affects how we see the world and how we see each other, it can have a powerful impact particularly on how we see our most intimate partner, but on how we see everyone. And I just noticed that as I experimented with these ideas about having making love frequently, but not climaxing, I found my relationships were much more harmonious and I was on a much more even keel. And one of the things we learned is you know, by, well, first, when I first got interested in this, of course, I just thought it was a men's problem, because most of these ancient sacred sex texts just talk about loss of semen being the big issue. And many of them say, well, women don't ejaculate, so therefore they don't have this issue, so they can orgasm as much as they want. And we went along experimenting in our respective relationships on that basis for a while, only to discover that we were still you know, ending up, in my case, I get a very sharp tongue. Um, I, I know sometimes you reported sitting in the corner of the kitchen in tears for no reason whatsoever. I mean, and and we, we eventually, I think she was the one who said, you know, do you think this affects us too? And I was going, well, yeah, I've been kind of wondering if these books are all wrong, you know, because it seems to be affecting me too. And somehow deep down, That also felt right. I mean, how could this just be a men's problem? But in those days, we didn't know much about neurochemistry. It wasn't until I connected with my husband and he began digging up research to try to account for why he felt better with this approach that we started to put it all together. And it's like, well, women do actually have brains, too. And (laughs) so if we overstimulate them, then it takes us a while to get back to equilibrium as well. And it was just like a shoe dropped. And from then on, I could at least, I wasn't always managing to be consistent about it, avoiding orgasm, but at least I started to get cause and effect linked up. And and of course, Anya here was doing the <laughs> same set of experiments in her relationships. So maybe you want to talk yeah. about what you saw. My, um, certainly
2: being weepy and totally oversensitive to any sort of stress. Um, the the other main thing that I noticed was I just wanted to get away from my partner. Hmm. I just thought, no, he's the worst person in the world. There are so there are millions of guys out there and there's got to be somebody better than him. <laughs> and I could only ever, you know, see the downside, you know.
1: Could I just um, interrupt you for a moment? Because I think this is important. I mean, ostensibly you were both having good sex, right? It's not like you, you yeah. were with he, they were crap yeah. in bed. I think that's important to emphasize here,
0: yes, right? Yes, 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 yes. I, in fact, one of my nicknames for her was Miss Multiple Orgasms, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: he sounds like a yeah. real asshole. <laughs> yeah,
0: but, you know, but, so,
2: and then you'd go off shopping, you said. Oh, yeah, I, I, I had a bit of a shopping thing, you know, I, I, I one of the, the amusing things that's developed over, over the time of experimenting with this is that we've actually been able to put a monetary figure on the cost of an orgasm. I <laughs> reckon <laughs> it's about 300 pounds or 300 dollars. I would, you know, suddenly get completely irrational bills for things. Or um, when I was living in Italy, um, they, they would change the side of the road that you could park your car on. And I didn't know about this, and I parked it on the wrong side, so I got this massive fine. And of course, I'd been I would parked my car to go and stay with my boyfriend, and you know I thought <laughs> one I thing and, had led to one thing, <laughs> I thought I left my car on the right side only to come out to discover it was the wrong side, and they towed the car away. So it cost me about three hundred pounds to get it back and pay the fine, and that thank you orgasm, you know. But then it was <laughs> other things, or so like I would want. Um, I had this urge to buy clothes or, I mean, stupid clothes that I would never wear, like evening gowns, you know, <laughs> duh, you know, or, or jewellery that I, I really did not need, you know, so, and it was always around that that sort of amount of money. And, I, you know, crazy. Um, yeah. So, but, but it, one of the things was definitely um, the thing that I just, I thought this guy is not for me. You know, however kind he was or however rational I could be at other times during this sort of two week window, I had to get away from the guy. He was just the worst, and I was sort of like planning my exit. And then the clouds would
0: dry, the dark cloud would pass, and he was wonderful again. <laughs> so, this is, I mean, to us, this is so fascinating, and it starts to pull in all sorts of spiritual traditions that advise meditation or other things. like As Anya <laughs> often says, if you look at all great spiritual traditions, you know, the religions, they were all teaching methods for calming down and centering the limbic brain, whether it was prayer or meditation or twirling or whirling or um, doing service to uh, others. Or fasting or diets mm-hmm. or all these things help to center you, and they therefore clear up your perception. And when you rock it with these neurochemical mood swings, which you can achieve with drugs too, you know, sex isn't the only way, then you are altering your perception for a while, and you will project that onto the world, and it will seem like the world is doing horrible things to you, but really, hey. (laughs) It's your perception. You know, it's up to you to keep your limbic system in balance if you want the best possible rosy colored perception of the world so that may be a dream too but it's a much more pleasant dream is is the way I see it so
1: yeah I was reading online I I could have the number wrong but I think I think it's I saw something between eight and ten percent of women experience some sort of depression after uh, climax like you know tears and weepiness and, and sensitivity that number blew me away that's a lot I mean that that's a lot of women like this is not so unusual
0: well, there's another study that's come out since on men, and it showed that, you know, 40-some percent of them had occasionally experienced this, enough that they had made the connection and answered the researcher to that effect. So men and women aren't that far apart. It doesn't mean you experience it the same way every time because it it also depends on what else might be rocking your limbic brain, of course, or, you know, maybe you're in a very harmonious calm situation, you don't feel the ripples as much in a given time. It's not always the same exact rollout I've noticed mm-hmm. over the time. But um, yeah, men are experiencing this too. And I think the more they're overtaxing themselves, many of them with pornography or whatever, that's that's leaving them less centered in that critically important primitive part of the brain that governs our perception of the world.
1: Just to really get into the weeds on this, um and both of you I can speak to this. Did you notice any difference between like, because so far, just to give some context, I study tantra, it's a real interest of mine, and they make a real distinction, uh, at least in my experience, between uh, clitoral orgasms, the sort of those clit-centric orgasms and the orgasms that sort of emanate from the deeper part of the, the vagina. Did you notice any differences, like if you don't mind my asking, you know, between the after effects when you'd have a sort of a clit-centric orgasm or, you know, more deeper, full, fuller uh, vaginal orgasms. Did you see any differences there?
2: No, not really. I I think um, these things all feel wonderful at the time. And (laughs) the the, the most important thing I think from Marnia's book is this idea that it can take days for the fallout to manifest. Mm. So you don't make the cause and effect link. So um, yeah, well, I I think, um, you know, it's that the, the highs and lows are still there. And bizarrely, something we've both discovered in recent years is that if we eat too much sugar, <laughs> we, get, we get what we call dream orgasms. So we, we orgasm in our sleep. So there doesn't need to have been an ejaculation or even, you know, uh, sex, but, you know, it has the same effect. And it's the same part of the brain that's being overstimulated. So. So, and you get the highs and lows and the weepiness and whatever you know,
0: as well. Interestingly, I think men often understand what I'm talking about faster than women do, because often men, my husband and I have discussed this. I don't know what your husband's thoughts are, but um, men seem to feel it sometimes faster in the recovery period. And by the end of the two weeks, they're not necessarily having major ripples. Where some of my worst, you know, boat rocking <laughs> emotionally seems to come right before I go back to equilibrium. So there may be, you know, gender differences here too in how this plays out. It's, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm encouraged that a few researchers have begun to ask questions: Is this even a thing? And they're finding out it kind of is. But I'm discouraged because I really don't think they're getting at the causes. They keep asking, "Oh, did you have a bad childhood, or is your marriage, were you mistreated in your marriage?" And that wasn't explaining at all. So why aren't they digging into, well, why is this happening? How, you know, why isn't it fitting our psychology model that it's always, you know, some issue from your childhood? Because I don't think it's an issue from my childhood. That's no causing any of this. And the, as I talk to other people, it's just like some women are more sensitive to PMS cycles and so forth. Some are going to be more sensitive to this. And if those researchers had asked me the question, oh, do you have post-coital, you know, depression or whatever? I would have said no, because it didn't happen close enough to the orgasm for me to even twig. I had to watch myself over a period of time where I was trying to be consistent in avoiding orgasm, but not entirely succeeding so that I could get cause and effect put together. It's fascinating. Well, that leads
1: into something else I was wanting to ask. I mean, uh, as one who can speak from experience, it's tough to break those old patterns um, during sex, you know, in terms of, you know, striving toward orgasm, craving orgasm. What have, have your experiences been like along those lines? Like, do you still get the odd cravings? Or, or do you incorporate orgasms into your sex life on a somewhat regular basis today? Or, or if you could talk a little bit about your, your journey through this.
0: Well, my husband and I never try for orgasm. It occasionally happens, I would say, more with him. But that's even rare, maybe a couple times a year. Um, and And I... I really don't like the fallout from this at all. So unless I, you know, binge on sugar or something and set off a wave, I usually don't have this challenge <laughs> during sex. But, you know, I've gotten better at knowing when to slow him down and so forth. So um, I would say
2: the same. It's uh, We certainly don't strive for orgasm. And my husband has managed in the seven years we've been together to not
0: ejaculate. Wow! <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> my hat I goes he, off. I know. I know. I, know, I mean, he's, <laughs> well, we're older than you yeah, are. Yeah. <laughs> but easy,
2: possibly. but um, he, I think, I think he's had um, the odd urge. Certainly, when we were first together, I think he. Um, had the odd urge, maybe masturbated a bit, but certainly not um, when he was, you know, with me. And I, th- I think maybe initially, there, you know, we were trying to go for this because, I mean, it- it's about getting in tune with each other's bodies and the subtle energies. So you're you're going along um, like in the stream and you hit the rapids and then you go over the waterfall. But so trying to um, attune to not getting into the rapids so you're pulled over, um, takes a little bit fine tuning initially. So I think at the start, um, I maybe went overboard a little bit more readily than him, Miss Multiple Orgasm, you know, a, a bit more sensitive <laughs> to the situation. He's just a lot more controlled than me. Um, so yeah, so we certainly don't strive for it. And apart from these sugar binges or the effects of that, it happens, but like Marnia says, because, because I know the effect of it, and my husband knows the effect on me <laughs> more, more, more particularly. <laughs> um, you, you just don't want to go there because it's two weeks of agony. <laughs> um, you know, and then not waiting, every minute. Not every minute. You're yeah. waiting the the shoe to fall mm. and you just wonder what's going to happen whether it's, you know, what bill am I going to get unexpectedly <laughs> or, um, or more just, just the mood you know, how am I going to react to something and as I said, you know, I find that I go right off my partner so I mean, even my husband, I'm thinking oh, you know, maybe this isn't the right thing after all, <laughs> you know I wonder what so-and-so's up to and I wonder, <laughs> you know dodgy, so
0: um Yeah. But you know, after you've been through this cycle a few times, you sort of get wise to yourself and you're like, okay, I'm not even going to think about any of those things until two weeks from now. And by then they've all evaporated and you're madly in love. So
1: Mm. (laughs) isn't it remarkable? I mean, I'd, I'd be curious to hear from both of you about what your experience has been like, just, you know, incorporating this into your life and talking to other people about it. Marnia, you have more experience than, than either of us about, you know, along those lines, but it consistently surprises me how much this idea of just having lots and lots of sex but not having an orgasm—how much it just blows people's minds. I mean, it just doesn't register; they they can't process it a lot of the time. It's such a such a bizarre idea to so many people. Um, what has your experience been like? Just sort of you know, well, Marnie, my my big question for you, I guess, is is you know, what has been your experience of the response to the book? Has the response to the book surprised you? Um, what do people get wrong about you in the book? If you could, if you could speak to that.
0: Well, my one thing I want to say about the book is, it appeals to men more than women, and yet when I was writing it, I really had women in mind too. I thought, well, this will be a nice tool; they can give it to their partner. Their partner can get mad at me, the crazy author, and not project his initial, you know, this no way, you know, onto this person. But I I mean, most of my fans are men, and I'm grateful for that. And part of that is my husband's influence in the book was very powerful in the first, you know, three or four chapters, because he really lays out the mechanics of the science. And men are wonderful. They like to know how a thing works. And then once they do, they're pretty much good to go but that's fascinating
1: to me because this is not a men's book and I would never read it like that like it's it's for (laughs) everyone
0: but they do Um, tend to like it more than women and um, not only that they tell me well I got it after the first five chapters or six I think through the porn chapter I didn't need all that other stuff and women who read it they say well after the first two chapters before it really gets into the science I completely understood what you were trying to say and all that science was a waste to print. So, you know, it, it's been very entertaining to watch that. I did learn over the years that I don't readily start laying this information on anyone. If it's somebody I'm supposed to share with, they, they will ask me some key question and they'll start talking about the pain in their relationships or, you know, their porn problem or whatever it is, and then I feel like, okay, that's opening the door, and I'll, you know, explain some of the concepts in it, but I've not really found a way to proselytize it, and there is a man on my website who's a marvelous salesman. I mean, he could sell ice cubes to Eskimos, right, and he tried for years to market this concept every way he could, and finally he said, you cannot sell this. Hmm. <laughs> So um, it's amazing to me that my book does still sell, but it does, you know, if, if people find it, who are ready to find it, I guess, and whether their partners are, of course, is a big question. Mm. They can't always persuade a partner to try it. So I think I alienated just about everybody I knew
2: for years, because <laughs> 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 I was thinking, but this is really important. This, this is life-changing. And we try and lay it all out and really bore the pants off people who weren't quite ready to, to hear it because uh, I'm a bit obstinate sometimes when I get the bit between my teeth. Um, so uh, Marnie was here, don't, 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 don't do that. You know, just just when people are ready, they'll, they'll want. Um, and I think I was doing it with a view to trying to find a, a partner you know that was willing to do it so although I got a few nibbles and then I did live with a guy for two and a half years and he was sort of normally interested in it but not in, totally enthusiastic about it um you know so that didn't work after a while I realized while it was a a lovely relationship in many ways it was the first time I'd ever lived with a guy um and I, there was lots of things about it I I appreciated it wasn't what it was supposed to be we weren't really cooking by gas as they say so um i decided to um move out of that relationship there was a point came where it was appropriate to move on and um, that was the right thing and then you know i wondered you know at some level was i making it too difficult for guys and i thought but what's the alternative to go back to the the, the usual way of making love? because i thought that is just not going to work so I felt stuck between a rock and a hard place. I just wasn't having much success. And then I met my husband and um, and he was he was interested. I gave him a copy of Marnia's book as he was about to go off on a long flight. And he came back and he says, yep, that makes sense. He, he'd been a, a widower for a year. He'd been married for a long time. His wife had been ill for a few years and then passed away. And um, they, he had tried tantra and using orgasm for visualization to achieve goals and such like and he'd had a certain amount of success with that so he was familiar with alternative approaches to making love and
0: this made a lot of sense to him so um you know we we the rest is history the rest
2: is history yeah
0: and now they run a charity together and they work very closely together just like my husband and i do like joined at the hip all day long we're we're together (laughs) 24 hours a day you know, and we don't, we don't, we
2: almost never argue. Yeah. I mean, there, there might be differences of opinion and things, but it's, we work it out easily. We never shout to each other. There's never anything like that. Yeah. And that's been seven years.
1: Wow. Congratulations.
2: Thank you. But yeah. I mean, that's down to this. I know it's down to this because when there is a slip, as we call it, an orgasm for whatever reason, I know that there is more tension there, but I just say, you know, so, foul weather warning. Yes. It's, it's going to be you know, a little it's going to rocky be about, it's for a bit. It's going to be a bit rocky. Said, Don't worry, I love you, and you know, we'll get through this together. I, said, I know we'll get through it together, but I'm just probably going to want to bolt off with the next man that I see, you know, so um, or run away. So it, it's. Um, but thank you for you know being willing to stick by me during this rocky period.
1: Mm. Well. I probably should have asked this a lot earlier in this conversation, but just to unpack things even more, uh, Marnia, you can take the lead perhaps on this. What what is carezza? Like, what are we talking about here as you would define it?
0: Carezza is just a term that an American doctor named um, Alice Bunker Stockham gave to this approach to sex where neither party tries to get to climax. And I like that term because it's not a religious term. It's not from any isms, but it's, there's no magic to the term itself. It's just referring, it's a name for this kind of practice. There are books by a woman named Diana Richardson that she calls tantra, but she's basically describing the same practice where neither party is striving for orgasm. So that's that's the shorthand form. I mean, to me, one of the most fascinating things about what I began to discover as I dug into this was that there were traditions all over the world that had elements of this. So it seemed to be pointing to some kind of capacity that we had as humans to choose an alternate approach. And then as I, as my husband started pulling out more and more of the science, it began to make sense. Wow. You want to give the cues that the limbic system is looking for that keep you bonded and you can't talk to it. It can't analyze anything. You have to give it those right cues. Like, touch or those mm sounds or looking into your partner's eyes a lot or laughing together about something. All of these kinds of things are what keep us bonded. And as we get very, very busy and we get standard sexology advice, we tend to think when we do have sex, it should just be about orgasm. And we forget the importance of these daily bonding behaviors. So what I liked about the way Coretza was described is it it really emphasized the importance of um, affectionate, trusting relationship.
2: And something I'd like to add to that is it breaks my heart every time I watch a dating program, which I do regularly because I love watching these things. When the program makers have done a fantastic job of pairing up a couple, who obviously got on together. There's a a program in the UK called First Dates. And they do an amazing job of getting people who are really compatible together. And they have a film, you know, the date in a restaurant. They're obviously getting on great together, loads in common, laughing their heads off. And then at the end, they say, well, do you think you will have a second date? And one of them will say, "Mm, I don't think so. There wasn't that special chemistry. And you just go, yes, there was. (laughs) Yes, there was. But there's this myth that, you know, you're you're, the person you're with is going to meet all these sort of um, fantasy criteria of looks and background And and fiery passion and they're going to be as madly in love with you as you are with them and you'll live happily ever after. And it's just, well, real life's not like that, but also you're so missing out on the opportunity of developing a really harmonious, happy relationship. Because when I met my husband, he was not my type, but fortunately, you know, I knew all this stuff. And I had also, you know, some read some other books about how you can, you know, um, be attracted to people who are not available, emotionally available for whatever reason because you're scared of intimacy. So once you actually recognize that might be the root of your problem, then when you come across somebody who is available and who's interested in you, you don't blow them off in the first date. You actually take time. So I would love to get that message across to so many people today who think, oh, you know, he's not the one. There is no such thing as the
0: one. But it's also true that if you're not orgasming frequently, you're more yeah. likely to see those qualities yeah. in the other person, yes. yeah because you're not going to be coming from a sense of scarcity where you're you know looking for the perfect stimulation to make you feel right, you're more centered and have a sense of well being to start with,
1: yeah, the word that I always come back to in these discussions is uh hunger, like I love feeling that hunger for my partner that. I don't know. Obviously, I can't speak for a woman's experience. I can only speak for my experience. But when I don't um, climax, it's just that hunger is just so amplified and it kind of fuels my day. Do you know what I mean? Whether mm. I'm interacting with my partner or not. And it's Put such a
0: bounce in your step.
1: Exactly. Very much so. Yeah. And it's it's just such a sort of just enlivening feeling. Um, and I don't know why more people wouldn't want that. But hang in there, Marnia, because I really think, you know, this this idea, the time is coming because, You know, we live in the age where everyone's swiping madly on Tinder and, you know, we live in the most, quote unquote, sex positive time probably in, you know, at least in recent history. Um, Yet the divorce rate is still, you know, what it is, whether it's 50 percent or whatever. And, you know, a lot of people having a lot of casual sex are finding that it's really not very fulfilling at all. You You emerge from that with this kind of hangover of like, what was all that for? You know, did I really get a whole lot out of that? Um, you know, people. I always rates compare rates it- of
0: intercourse. Rates of intercourse are actually dropping, particularly in young people. They're just not having as much sex as they were. You know, they're hooked on their screens and their sex toys, and and the sexologists are telling them that's good, that's positive sexuality. You're taking care of your sexual needs, and and yet they're feeling so little satisfaction, and still a sense of frustration that can ratchet them up into more and more extreme stimulation, and still aren't you know, not satisfied. And then they get with a real person. They don't feel anything. Well, that's very puzzling, too. We've been entertained, my my husband and I, to see how many young people are calling themselves asexual. Mm-hmm. And then if you ask them, well, you know, are you masturbating? Because you think if a person's asexual, they wouldn't masturbate. Oh, yeah, four times a day, <laughs> you know, they're using porn. <laughs> and so to yeah, so someone in my generation, that's like, well, no, I think what's happening is you're you're using this supernormal stimulus to such a degree that real partners can't compete. And so you're not attracted to male, female, anything anymore, because you're hooked on this other thing. So anyway, didn't mean to interrupt.
1: No, no, not at all. And I I mean, look at what's happening in Japan. I don't know if you ladies have been following like what's what's going on there. I mean, it's I'm fascinated by what's happening there. And it's, for me, it's it's a eerie glimpse of what could be for the wider world. You know, it's I mean, it's
0: coming. It's coming yeah. here too. Already, the statistics are showing it. We're no different. We're just a little bit behind. That's all.
1: Yeah, because you can. I mean, you can entertain any fantasy in Japan. You you can you know any kind of robot, any kind of, <laughs> whatever you want. Um, the population. Uh, you know, the the there's no population. It's actually uh, they're going into population decline. People aren't getting married. The birth rate is, you know, falling off a cliff. Um, and I think they're, to do is to you
0: marry
2: know. yourself. The girls are marrying them I've themselves. I've heard about they want this, the yes. They want the wedding, the, the dress, the, the jewelry, the, you know, the girly stuff, pictures. Yeah. They can't, quite, they can't quite hook a groom. So they'll stop the groom. I'm having my wedding anyway.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. At yeah. great cost.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, it's, um, I think that there's really no substitute. I mean, no matter how technologically advanced we get, there's just no substitute for skin to skin, eye to eye human contact. You know, the arrogance, I think that, that a lot of, you know, modern humans, um, the evidence for that is astounding. You know, like we think we can rewire ourselves. We think we can rewire our you know, deeply programmed biology. But ultimately, there's some things that are just never going to change about human nature, you know. Right. Um,
0: I like to tell people, you know, we're tribal pair bonders. So our brains are set up to feel a sense of well-being for deep, intimate relationships, close, trusted friendships. And that that's we're going to, I mean, maybe eventually we'll evolve past that and be perfectly happy with robots as our farewell song. But for right now, we still have our limbic brain set up for those things. And it's pretty hard to do without them.
1: Mm. And Anya, you were mentioning earlier about, you know, all the propaganda in society about finding the one. And, you know, if you don't feel that spark Mm -hmm. and that magic feeling to a certain uh, extent, you can kind of create those feelings, which I think is partly what your book is about, Marnia, it's like yeah. if you can make yeah. deliberate choices to foster those feelings, to foster that spark, to foster that energy, which I think exactly. is, is, is lost in a lot of, at least in the West and probably most of the world, where, you know, people want the magic love story where everything just sort of happens and everything falls into place and, you know, the relationships never any quote unquote work, um, which is just completely unrealistic. It, it's, uh, it's a sad standard that we feel forced to live up to in a lot of ways.
2: Look at at lots of Hollywood couples. I mean, if you think of Angelina Jolie, she's stunningly beautiful, you know, successful Hollywood actress. Brad Pitt, you know, the ideal sort of macho guy, lovely guy. And they didn't, it didn't work for them. You know, it was a
0: disaster for them too. So... My thought too is if, if you are keeping your limbic system in balance and you're not running on a scarcity program, which is often what affects us after orgasm, we're feeling low dopamine or whatever. And then we seem to try to fill ourselves from outside. I mean, this starts to sound like Buddhism almost. So, so if you, if you aren't feeling that sense of lack all the time and desperately seeking things to fill it, you have more gas in your tank. So then you can actually do something for the world. And both of us as couples, whether we planned it or not, do service to the world, which we never could have done if we didn't have this extra gas in our tank.
2: You'd be spending your time in a job that you didn't enjoy. Um, to buy things that you didn't really need or necessarily want to impress people you don't like, usually family, you know, because they money you don't have. But you know, it's um, and you're miserable, and then you spend any money you've got left going to a shrink to try and work it all out. You know, and probably two years trying to decide was it your bad potty training, you know, or, or can you blame
0: you? Is it your mother, your father you should be blaming? I mean, it's bonkers. <laughs> So we don't spend our energy on that. We're out there helping people who need help. So that's, you know, and it's far more satisfying. And it also adds to harmony in a relationship because nothing's ever a perfect fit with another human being. I mean, they're always on a slightly different schedule than you or whatever. And if you have a larger goal in mind and plenty of energy to work on it, then you just don't let that little stuff get you. You know, it's just not important. It's trivial. You can keep it in perspective compared to the the wonder of having a partner who's working with you on something really exciting that has meaning in the world. That's way more satisfying. And somebody you trust. Yeah. That you're not worried that
2: he's, you know, about to run off with your neighbor or, or, or somebody else. I mean, one of the things I've noticed, certainly initially with practicing Koretso was you're more appreciative of the opposite sex. And I know that I was looking at men, but not in a lustful way, in a loving way. And I just think, oh, the men are fabulous. They're wonderful. And I know my husband was the same, you know, and he loves chatting to women. And, um, but not in a flirtatious way, in a nice way that women don't feel icky about. Because there's nothing worse than, you know, being in a situation where guys are chatting you up, even though they know you're in a relationship. And they're in a relationship
0: and they're just chancing their arm. It just makes life very uncomfortable. Yeah. So, yeah. And I love men too. I mean, to me, if there's a man in the room, it's, it's like sunshine. That's how it feels. You know, it's yang energy and it doesn't matter if they're 90 or they're 16. You you know, it's it's just, it's a very wonderful exchange of energy. It doesn't have to be sexual per se.
1: That's that's beautifully put. And I I completely agree. You know, like I I, I love women. And, you know, again, like just as, as long as we're continuing to list all this laundry list of the faults of modern society, it seems in the West, you know, everyone's trying to be the same or the idea is that, you know, men and women are, you know, of course we're equal, but we're different, and thank God for that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's such a, such an important idea, and it, it it seems so lost in so much of the world, and it, it's it's so sad. You know, it just because yeah, I mean, like we're different, and and thank thank God for that. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about what works um, before before I let you you ladies go. Um, You mentioned like pair bonding behaviors. Like are there like what kind of like let's get specific a bit. Like what kind of behaviors do you both engage in with your partners on a regular basis or even a daily basis um, that you find helpful?
0: Um, One thing we do is we almost every morning when we wake up, we have a long snuggle time. Um, And usually I will start out by holding his penis. He just really likes that. And then eventually he'll crawl on top of me and we'll snuggle and snuggle. And then we're ready to get up because we usually don't have sex then because we, we don't have kids and we have flexibility. So we're sort of afternoon people
1: mm. for that afternoon fact. delight.
0: Exactly. <laughs> um, so that seems to be important for us. We frequently hug during the day just because it feels good. <laughs> um, and we go to sleep, at, we try to make a point of going to sleep at the same time most of the time. So there's a little bit of um, bonding behavior type stuff that goes on there too. Um, yeah, do you want to read some of them or which yeah, one? You so don't have to read them all. No, but.
2: page 178 of Marnia's book has got bonding cues. And the beauty of bonding signals is that most of them don't require words. And many are so effortless that they can be done even at the end of a long day yet they are potent signals for contented closeness. Here's a list adapted from caregiver infant cues. You can no doubt add some of your own. So simple things like smiling with eye contact, skin-to-skin contact, providing a service or treat without being asked, giving unsolicited approval via smiles or compliments, gazing into each other's eyes for several moments, listening intently and restating what you hear, Forgiving or overlooking an error or thoughtless remark, whether past or present. Preparing your partner something to eat. Sharing a meal or a walk with your attention on each other. Synchronised breathing. Kissing with lips and tongues. Cradling or gently rocking your partner's head and torso, which works well on a couch or with lots of pillows. Holding or spooning each other in stillness for at least 20 minutes or half an hour. Wordless sounds of contentment and pleasure. That's the mmm
0: type.
2: <laughs> stroking with intent to comfort. My husband loves me stroking his head or just the side, uh, things like that.
0: Um,
2: hugging with intent to comfort. Lying with your ear over your, your partner's heart and listening to his or her heartbeat for several moments. Touching and sucking of nipples and or breasts. Gently placing your palm over your lover's genitals with intent to comfort. Making time together at bedtime a priority, even if one partner has to get up and work on something afterward. So the desire for and rewards of these behaviors are deeply rooted in millions of years of evolution. Enjoy.
1: <laughs> well, thanks for reading that. And, and sort of a follow-up question, as you're reading that, I'm thinking someone listening to this might be thinking, well, when everything's great in the relationship and I'm well-rested and the kids are in bed and like, it's very easy to engage in this type of behavior... Um, but I think it's important to, to choose to do this stuff sometimes, even when we're kind of pissed off or, or things are not good in the relationship or we're not feeling totally harmonious. I mean, would, would you guys agree with that?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Just take a time out and go hold each other, and preferably in silence if you're really upset. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, as, as two women in, uh, happy marriages and seem to be finding ways to make it work. Do, do either of you have any other advice or lessons you've learned or, just words of wisdom for people looking to you know for looking for advice on how to stay together and make it make it work is there anything else that comes to mind?
2: Well, I think just generally a lot of the beliefs that we have and that we're given somehow by culture are wrong and that and um, we it's, it's like that thing I was saying you know you you believe the one is out there and it's all going to be fireworks and fabulous forevermore, but unless you learn that there's a, 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 a mating pedal, a fertilization-driven agenda that your brain wants you to pass on your genes, and there's a bonding pedal and that you can steer for one rather than the other, then you're not necessarily going to find that long-term harmony and happiness. So, um,
0: you know, I think getting the knowledge and then experimenting with it.
2: Yeah, that's
0: what I was going to say. Just make these experiments and be honest with yourselves. That. I think in, in my book, I tell people, try this for three weeks, no orgasm, but lots of bonding behaviors, and then go back to conventional orgasm, be a scientist, see what you notice over the next couple weeks. And if you do that a few times, then the chances are you'll find out if this is for you. And if it is, then I I mean, and, and you are susceptible to this problem, then that will increase the harmony in your relationship if you learn to steer around these shoals because you just don't need it in your relationship. You don't have to be biting your tongue all the time. You know, we, both of us, can say anything we want in our marriage, and our husbands can too, and we just don't get mad. You know, there's no eggshell walking, and that is so relaxing. Mm, (laughs) So I don't know. That's, That's... a real gift. And
2: while I said, you know, that when I first met my husband, I thought he's not my type. No. But I knew that I had to go with this and practice it um, because I knew the theory was right. And I knew from my previous relationship that it did work. But then, of course, I just think he's the most adorable guy alive. I just think he's <laughs> fabulous. And I, I'm just so blessed to have him in my life. And he's just improved my life a hundredfold, at least. So um, he is pretty amazing. He is, he is terrific. And, and, you know, month on month, I find and discover new things about him that just make me appreciate him all the more.
1: So that's beautiful. That's
2: really, thank you.
1: So, before I let you both go, I'd like to ask um, a few questions, very quick questions, and just say the first, you know, one or two words, first things that comes to mind. Uh, don't worry, this will be painless, I promise. Mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. maybe, Marnia, you can start, and then Anya, you can follow up. So, Marnia. The thing I am most attracted to in the opposite sex is?
0: A smile. Mm.
2: Attention, focused attention. Mm. On me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate your candor. Um, Marnia, I would most like to be remembered as?
0: I don't really desire to be remembered for anything. Fair enough. <laughs>
2: um, I think as a teacher that gave people the knowledge they needed to
0: find loving relationships.
1: Beautiful. And last one, Marnia, love is.
0: This is funny because she's talking about doing a PhD in addition to all her other degrees on the subject of love. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, What is love? It's one of the most Googled, it's one of the most searched terms in Google and elsewhere.
1: Mm. Well, maybe we can leave it there if you want.
0: (laughs) I I guess I think it is ultimately it's oneness and an awareness of oneness, but it gets a little heavy.
2: (laughs) It's uh, everything good.
1: (laughs) Everything good. Very well put. I hope that wasn't too painful. (laughs) Thank you for playing along.
2: Thank you. (laughs)
1: There you have it, my friends. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. I hope you got a lot out of that. This is a conversation that I think I will return to, that I will listen to uh, more than once. You know, this, is, this kind of conversation is really the main reason why I started this new podcast and why I'm so excited about sharing um, these conversations, because, you know, a lot of these insights, a lot of these practices, a lot of these perspectives uh, are really helpful, uh, even just selfishly for my own life. And so I I hope you find them helpful as well. Before I let you go, I'll remind you that ratings and reviews are very important. So if you dig the show, please take 30 seconds out of your day, leave a rating and review of Humans in Love on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Before I let you go, I'll remind you that life is short, far too short to not really let yourself love as freely and as often as you can. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again very soon.